Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back on an awesome year for movies, which is really every year. Uh, in this first season, we are taking a look at 1994 in film through the lens of uh, various categories. I'm Josh Bell, film critic, and I am joined by... I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, and rock contour. Yes. That is a you. You've got you've got all of these little uh, monikers for yourself just at the ready. I'm impressed, uh, and we're joined also by our extraordinary producer David Rosen of the Piecing It Together podcast. Hey, everybody! And in this episode, we are talking about the winner of the Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival in 1994, as well as a host of other things, and probably um, as we were saying in the preview last time. One of the greatest films of all time, Pulp Fiction. Perhaps the awesomest movie of this awesome movie year. Yeah, I think I think that is a fair assessment. It is a great movie. Um, and it was actually also a successful movie. I think, you know, we talked about uh, Clerks earlier in the season as an important, influential indie movie. Um, but at the box office, it you know, it didn't make a massive splash. Uh, but Pulp Fiction made $108 million in North America. It made $213 million worldwide. It was the number 10 film of 1994 at the box office in North America and the first indie film to gross $100 million. So it was yeah. a popular movie. And it cost $8.5 to make. So, you know, they basically had the profit back uh, before the movie came out because they had Bruce Willis, so they sold all the foreign rights for $11 million. Yeah, so. Um Right. And I feel like now, you know, uh, selling the foreign rights to a movie by having Bruce Willis in it is still a solid strategy that yeah. many filmmakers employ. I'm, I'm down with that. So. Uh, for movies that are not as good as Pulp Fiction. And, uh, you know, uh, as we get into how good this movie is, it's always fun to remember that uh, Columbia TriStar passed on the movie. They had the movie. They had the rights. And uh, as a Mike Metavoy who was running it said, this is too demented. I don't want it. I mean, to be fair, this movie is demented, <laughs> and I could see a studio executive in 1994 not understanding that this movie would be a commercial success. Yeah, but I mean, what a fun time period. You know, Tarantino gets a million dollars to write this script. This is the the, the Shane Black era of spec script, uh, you know, dominance, so, uh, or towards the end of it, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I so. think later, and that was a little earlier, but just to, yeah. just to think this could have been the next The Long Kiss Goodnight. Thankfully, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I like that movie. So. <laughs> Tune um, into Dave's new podcast, Crappy Movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this movie, uh, as we were saying, it won the Palm d'Or at Cannes uh, in 1994. It was nominated for seven Oscars. Uh, including Best Picture, Best Actor for John Travolta, Best Supporting Actor for Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Best Supporting Actress for Uma Thurman, Best Director for Quentin Tarantino, Best Editing, uh, and Best Original Screenplay, which is the only award that it ended up winning at the Oscars. Yeah, thankfully, because Roger Avery got a little credit for writing on that one. So. I mean, he kind of deserves credit. I think he came up with a lot of the concepts in this I movie. know, I'm saying in some awards... So basically... Pulp Fiction won the award for best screenplay almost all over, right? Yes. It won, yes. It won in um, the Golden Globes and the Brit Awards. And Tarantino had made this deal with Avery or convinced him where he was like, hey, you don't get to take a writing credit so I can have written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Even though everyone 
thinks, or the legend goes, that Avery co-wrote it. Yeah, so, and he does get credited for story, I think. Yeah, not the same. No. You know, um, so they win the Golden Globe, Tarantino doesn't thank him, and then they win the Oscar, and he gets an Oscar. So it's very strange how that happened and whatnot. Yeah, so. and then Roger Avery went on to make, uh, what, The Rules of Attraction? I and, like that uh, movie. And also, I think, went to prison for a while? Not as good as <laughs> Rules of Attraction. Yeah. We'll have to look that up. Dude. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. Um, so this movie was very well reviewed at the time that it came out. Um, Roger Ebert, in his review, um, compared it to Citizen Kane. Like Citizen Kane, Pulp Fiction is constructed in such a nonlinear way that you could see it a dozen times and not be able to remember what comes next. And I definitely had that feeling watching it this time. Uh, it doubles back on itself, telling several interlocking stories about characters who inhabit a world of crime and intrigue, triple crosses, and loud desperation. The title is perfect, like those old pulp mags named Thrilling Wonder Stories and Official Detective. The movie creates a world where there are no normal people and no ordinary days, where breathless prose clatters down fire escapes and leaps into the dumpster of doom. Some breathless prose there from Roger Ebert himself. The dumpster of doom. I like that. He loved, 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 loved this movie. <laughs> yes, so. he did. In contrast to North, which we talked about before. Um, Richard Corliss in Time Magazine said, it towers over the years other movies as majestically and menacingly as a gang lord at a preschool. It dares Hollywood films to be this smart about going this far. If good directors accept Tarantino's implicit challenge, the movie theater could again be a great place to live in. So, and it was, I think... Uh, you know, we forget maybe now because Tarantino has done so much and so many people have imitated him, but this was like very radical as a mainstream film in 1994. Oh, yeah, yeah, it definitely was. And, you know, this was this, I mean, the buzz had been growing. He had Reservoir Dogs out already, which was a cool indie, did well for itself. And then, you know, as a writer, True Romance and uh, Natural Born Killers were all around this time. But this was the this was the launching pad of Quentin Tarantino for certain. Yeah, and and just the kind of movie that didn't make a hundred million dollars, that didn't make the top still ten. Still doesn't. Box that still doesn't. That's true. But I feel like a movie that has some influence from Pulp Fiction is much more likely now. You know, you could point to even big, expensive Hollywood blockbusters that internalize things like the nonlinear storylines and the discussion of pop culture. And, you know, the, the fast, witty dialogue and all that kind of stuff is, is much more accepted in a mainstream film now. It was a game changer, that is for sure. Yes. But not everyone loved it. Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum in the Chicago Reader uh, was mixed, said Quentin Tarantino's second feature, a chronologically scrambled collection of interlocking crime stories, extracts most of its kicks from other movies and TV shows. He says, the overall project is evident to evict real life and real people from the art film and replace them with generic teases and assorted homages. Don't expect any of the life experiences of the old movie sources to leak through. Punchy, flamboyant surface is all. So he thought this movie was kind of all style and no I mean, it's interesting because Tarantino would almost agree with him on like, hey, I'm taking all these old stories that we've all seen before and I'm blowing them up and giving them totally you know, new LA 90s style, you know, worlds and endings to them and whatnot. So the guy wasn't that far off. He just didn't like it the way we did. Right. And I mean, and I do think like as much as this movie is extremely stylish, the characters are well drawn. They do feel like 
I mean, maybe not literal real people, but they feel like they're not one dimensional. Right. They're not just cogs, you know, for the, the delivery of style. The first thing you see on screen is the definition of pulp, right? Yeah. And like a pulp magazine. And right. that's what this is. This is pulp stories, interlocking and uh, weird, grimy underworld, you know, kind of characters in the lives they lead. Like, sure, could we not know, you know, two hitmen? No, but do we know guys who have uh, messed up drug deals? I'm sure I do. <laughs> you know, so. uh, this movie also got a B plus cinema score, which is which is good. And and I was sort of surprised because cinema score, which is the audience polling service, yeah, uh, often movies that people expect one thing and get another thing, and a movie like this that by the time it reached wide release, you know, I think people might not have understood going in that it was this challenging, non-linear, weird indie film, I would have thought maybe a lot of audiences going in just like knowing, oh, this is a new cool thing that everyone wants to see would come out completely baffled. But a B plus is a good cinema score. Um, so I, I think what's impressive to me is that this movie was like, a mainstream popular sensation in 1994. Yeah, the uh, the the little indie that could, right? <laughs> so, although it wasn't an indie, this was the first movie that Miramax, you know, and the Weinstein brothers like really uh, produced from beginning to end. And this was after Disney had bought them. And was it know, after Disney had bought them? Yes, oh, it okay. was. And then this was, you know, um, this was like we said, Columbia TriStar gave it up, and Harvey Weinstein scooped it up. He likes scooping things and <laughs> bazoom. And, uh, you know, like, and, uh, that was it, man. It was all, uh, it was off to the races with this thing. And from the opening, you know, chords of Dick Dale's surf rock, like you are, yeah. you are in it to win it with adrenaline all the way through. Yeah, of course. And let's take a moment now and take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about our general thoughts on Pulp Fiction. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our 1994 season, we are talking about Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction and getting into a bit about what we thought about the movie generally. I was impressed. You know, I've seen this movie numerous times, uh, although I'm sure I hadn't seen it in a while. Um, so yeah, let's. W when did you first see it? I remember seeing it um, not in the theater. Yeah, I was you know a young teenager when it came out. Right. I saw it on you know video or dvd um when when it uh when it hit and i remember liking it but i liked it more this time yeah i think you know this as opposed to clerks which we talked about like when you're 15 16 you can pretty much get all the clerks this i think is a little more mature you got to like really focus in and and give it your best and it gives it back to you and uh yeah, so I it was what a pleasure to revisit. I hadn't watched it since the original time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah I see. I mean, I also I don't. I'm pretty sure I did not see this in theaters, but I did see it soon after. And I think, uh, like like we said in when we were talking about Clerks, this is a movie that that as like a 14, 15 year old, you knew like this is a cool movie that you got to see. And there was stuff on you know whether it was MTV or whatever. Uh, Tarantino himself was like a celebrity yeah. and, uh, you know, so I, I'm pretty sure I saw this on, on VHS. I definitely owned this movie on VHS, uh, and watched it a bunch of times, uh, back then. 
Um, I remember uh, buying myself a Pulp Fiction t-shirt at Hot Topic um, when I was a teenager. And I wore that shirt until like probably like four or five years ago, in which a time it, it completely fell apart. But it was the, the poster with Uma Thurman leaning on the bed. Very iconic image. So, um, yeah, that is. And I, I think I remember your video cassette of it because, as you know, uh, audience, Josh and I, we're besties outside of this. <laughs> Did, was it not a double cassette? I don't know. I don't I think it was. Okay, yeah, maybe I don't have it yeah. anymore. Uh, I did upgrade to it on DVD eventually. And, and you had mentioned how Tarantino became such a uh, figure in pop, pop culture. He hosted Saturday Night Live on November yeah. 11th, 1995, which uh, I wonder how many film directors have hosted. I know? don't know. Yeah, and Tarantino, I mean, the idea of Tarantino as a celebrity is just such a funny thing. He was an actor. He got cast in things yeah. as an actor. Destiny turns on the radio. Which I've never seen. But I mean, what were people thinking that Tarantino was going to be like a star as an actor? What was the movie? Was it him and George Clooney and they're fighting? Uh, yeah, like from Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, right. yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, we'll get to his performance in this, but. These two, this and Reservoir Dogs are probably his best performances, I'd say. Yeah, well, I mean, he didn't, like, I think, and I could be wrong, but I feel like following that uh, brief period where people thought he was going to be a star, he doesn't act very much. No. And I, he almost never acts in other people's movies anymore, yeah. I don't think. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, judging Tarantino as an actor, I feel like is not the point. But look at this. This is the 90s, right? You yeah. got him. Kevin Smith. True. Ed Burns. Oh, know. God, your favorite guy, Ed Burns. Like Jason's going to launch an all Ed Burns podcast <laughs> soon, I think. I have watched enough of his films. So. Yeah. But hey, Ed Burns, you know, he was an actor almost exclusively for years at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So. But you're right. It was weirdly this time of the like indie film auteur as celebrity, which yeah. is a bizarre thing. We're probably forgetting a few. Also. I'm sure we yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino's buddy, was was a bit in that realm at the time. I right. Think. So, so yeah, uh, I like this movie. I liked it a lot at the time. I always thought of it as one of my favorite movies. Watching it again, not for the first time since 1994, but definitely for the first time in a number of years. It just, it's amazing. It's an incredibly well-made film. I, I feel like I'm at a loss for words, which was bad, but you know, yeah. it just is fantastic. Yeah. No words on the podcast. No, that's good. good. We're going to have so, silence. That's yeah. our response to this movie for uh, the next 20 minutes. I agree. It's awesome, man. If you said, Hey, this is the best movie ever made. I'd be like tough to argue. You yeah. Know? So yeah. it's so personal when you get to that point, but like everything just comes together, still works. Uh, like I said, like once you hear that Dick Dale uh, was in Miserloo, is that yeah, what that song's yeah. called? Like, it comes in and like it's like, man, that sets the tone like of such a high energy that like um, the movie actually keeps for two and a half hours, which is tough to do. Yeah, to keep uh, you know that type of frenetic uh, pace, and um, you know, there's very few things I could criticize in this film. You know, yeah. so I mean, I. Uh, I think you could say like maybe the ending could have been pushed up uh, the last scene in the diner and everything could have been pushed up and you could have ended with like Butch because you, that's where you are. And I mean, the only other thing I really found was like Tarantino's character uses the N word yeah. a lot and that doesn't, that doesn't come off well. That didn't come off well then because right. you know, he was like this white, I mean, there's no reason for his character to say it. Right. No. So no. he basically says, you know, cause uh, 
Jules and Vincent get to his house with uh, dead Marvin in the back seat. I shot Marvin in the face, you know, <laughs> like what a great line that is, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Tarantino is uh, his character. Jimmy is just said, uh, does this does this look like a dead N word? You know, uh, yeah, garage? he and, says it so many times and, and, and it's not necessary and it doesn't add to his character and it makes you question a little more what the relationship with him and Samuel Jackson right, is really. Right. So. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think you're you're absolutely right that there's no need for him to say that, that as a character, it's distracting. I think it doesn't help that Tarantino is the one saying it and is the one playing the character, that if he had cast, you know, I was reading a bit about the various Right. Casting, it was almost Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz and had switched those two parts. It still would have been a bad idea to have him say that word so many times, but it maybe would have come off not quite as, you know, just weirdly like self-regarding if it had been another actor playing that part. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And it also, does, you wonder if it like, because Sam Jackson's character uses it, you know? Sure. And it's like, does it take away from the effect of his character and how he uses it? Right, and I think it does. And I think it's one thing for Tarantino as the writer and director to write that dialogue for a black actor to say. Right. Versus write it for himself to say and then say it a right. bunch of times. Because the character isn't racist. He doesn't appear right. to be racist. He right. appears to be friends with right. Sam Jackson. So he's just using the word with the hard R, you know, that's <laughs> like, um, it's like, why? Why? Right. Why? And then, right. you know, we get it that you're upset, like your character's upset, but yeah. like it just that that's really my main criticism. Yeah. So that's one scene in a two hour and 35 minute movie. Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. That's like a brilliant film. Yeah. So. No, I agree. I mean, it's, we, you know, we're starting with the negatives here, but you know, I, I would, I would be with you in that. That's definitely the worst aspect of the movie. And the one moment where watching it now, I was like, Oh, I am not like fully on board with this movie in this moment. Yeah. Um, but I mean, to get back to what's amazing about this movie, which is just like almost everything else, I think, you know, what impressed me too is that you're saying like right from the beginning, right from the, the, the opening notes of that Dick Dale song. But even before that, the opening scene, which is these two characters who are so minor, you know, Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth as the honey and baby doll or whatever pumpkin, they call them. Pumpkin and honey bunny. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Yeah. And like from the first moment they start talking you're just like hit in the face with like what is this is amazing like it's so sharp and so uh vibrant and it just draws you in from that first second and you know if you don't know anything about this movie and you thought that this is a movie about those characters i would be fully on board to watch that movie right and you don't know anything say you know if this is your first time and right. then you go from that to the credits to uh Vincent Vega played by John Travolta and like, yeah, man, what a, what a great job he did in this right. film, yes. right? you know, yeah. and, um, and Sam Jackson in the car and they're talking about, you know, Vincent living in Europe and the, the famous Royale with Royale cheese. Cheese, yeah. with cheese there. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and it's interesting if you read about how many of the actors have referenced this film in other movies that yeah. they've made, including right. the Royale with cheese, which, Travolta brought up in some movie. Oh, did he? I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, every, every aspect of this movie or virtually every aspect of this movie is so confident. Like, you know, this movie is radical in so many ways, 
But Tarantino is like in command of the dialogue and the performances and the camera placement and the editing and everything in this movie feels like it was made by a director who is at the top of his game in every way. And even though he'd only made one feature before this. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the legend of him as a video store employee who right. watched and knew everything. And he was already a hot commodity, like we said, at this point in time. Yeah, with with Travolta, who did get you know one of the one of the uh, Academy Award nominations. Yeah. It's interesting to see here because you know he, he in a lot of other movies he likes to go very big. He does, and yes. he's I mean this character he could have easily gone very big, but right. like it's a very controlled performance. Yeah, that, like you're like man, this dude can bring it, dude. He yeah. really can act. You know, yeah. So, um, and you know, that's got the famous dance sequence with him and Uma Thurman, right. which a lot of people like to bring back to Saturday Night Fever. Right. What I love about the dance sequence is um, it feels so natural. It doesn't feel forced at all. Yeah. It doesn't feel like either of them are dancing for attention, you know, and it's it's just so much fun to watch, you know, um, yeah. at the Jackrabbit Slims. Yeah, it is. I mean, and that's another thing about this movie is that you know, it's become this object of like, oh, it's one of the greatest movies ever made. We're comparing it to Citizen Kane. You know, it's this massive accomplishment in cinema history, but it's fun to watch. Like, it's entertaining as hell. Right. As opposed to something like not saying Citizen Kane isn't fun, but you could probably watch this, you know, a couple of times a month and be like, ah, this is still good. Right. Citizen Kane, I don't know if you'd want to watch a couple of times a month. I Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen Citizen Kane in a while. We'll get to that when we do uh, 1941's awesome movie year. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you're, so going back, like you're talking about Travolta's performance and Sam Jackson is the one in this movie who goes big, yeah. at, at but in a really good way. And he's another actor, maybe not as egregiously as Travolta, but he's definitely another actor who can be guilty of going way too big in parts and movies that don't warrant it just because he's got this like outsized presence to him. But Every time that Jules, you know, kind of builds himself up and de like delivers those speeches and whatever, yeah. it is, has maximum impact. And you really feel this character as this larger than life presence. Yeah, he's definitely got the uh, street preacher thing down to a pat here. And um, the, the chemistry between those two is great. And it's really fun after they're cleaning the car where uh, yeah. Marvin in the head, you know, and like they're arguing about who's cleaning what and why Sam Jackson's in the right. back. Got the brains. Yeah. yeah. And uh, also, also the interaction with uh, those two and Harvey Keitel, who I love, maybe my favorite, him and Walken are my two favorites in this thing. Yeah. Um, where, you know, um, Keitel is the, uh, the fixer, the wolf. Yes. Winston Wolf. Right. And uh, you know, he, he's going to get, this situation with the car fixed and cleaned and, you know, Jimmy's uh, wife will never even know they were there. And he starts barking orders and then, and you know, Jules is very respectful and Travolta's, uh, you know, meanwhile, like a, a, a please would be nice. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. like just the interactions on those levels are, are so much fun. Yeah, they are. They're like all of the actors. I mean, Travolta and Jackson obviously have great chemistry, but you know, pretty much any pairing of actors in yeah. this movie have great chemistry. Travolta and Uma Thurman have great chemistry. Uh, you know, Bruce Willis and Ving Rhames, when they're tied up and, you know, got ball gags in their mouths, have great chemistry. Yeah, and, um, then, and then Walken, who gives, like, one of the great, you know, in, in a career of monologues, gives maybe his greatest monologue, yeah, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
who could have pulled that off like Christopher Walken? Yeah, you know, like, that, that, yes. So I'm not saying another actor couldn't have done that job well, but. But not done it the way that he does right, it. Right, the way that he does it makes it so much better, Yeah, you know? So. Yeah, yeah, and that I think, I could be wrong, but I think that is one of the things that Avery wrote that was like. Yeah, the Gold initial, Watch story, yeah. That yeah. Whole speech, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the performances, Uma Thurman, who was also Oscar nominated, yeah. is so good as Mia. And Mia has like, there's a lot of, like kind of melancholy to her as a character when she talks about her failed pilot and she tells uh, Vincent Vega the joke uh, from Fox Force 5 there at the end. Like you can get a sense of her as this person who has a whole history and who's kind of had this weird bumpy life to end up where she is. Yeah, so she's married to like a, I don't want to say a mob boss, but like a crime boss. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And also, you know, it's an interracial relationship in the mid 90s. That they never reference, like, oh, your husband's black and right, you know, you're white. Right. And like, and that's cool. And they did a few of those different things, you know, where it was uh interracial relationships that yeah. they just let be like yes. as a relationship, which is great, as opposed to calling attention to it. By the way, Dave, do you remember the joke? The Fox uh, Force 5 joke? Not exactly. I just remember it being a thing, but yeah. Yeah. I had thought, like, as I was watching the movie, I was thinking, I was like, I feel like I know what it is. And I was thinking of all sorts of dumb, corny jokes in my mind. And then I was wrong. I did not remember it. You remember it now. Well, yeah, I remember it now. We don't need to tell the whole joke now, but uh, it is a, a good- Well, now we have to tell the joke. It's, you know, what is it? The the tomatoes are walking, the mom and the dad and the baby tomato and the tomato baby's lagging behind. And the dad goes back and squashes him and says, ketchup, right? That's a pretty good joke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we were talking about- uh, when we were when we talked about the Lion King, we we're talking about uh, borscht belt humor and the cat skills, and that that fits right in there. Yeah, I mean that's uh, not a good joke, and it's no. supposed to be not a good joke. Right, you know? right. It is a successfully written bad joke. Yeah, which is a skill. So you got you got so many iconic pieces here. You got the the dance uh, sequence and that whole sequence at Jack Rabbit Slims, which is like a 1950s diner yeah. with uh, Steve Buscemi showing up as the Buddy Holly lookalike waiter. Who's a very bad waiter, as they they note. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got, you know, like you said, the um, the dungeon scene underneath the, the store. Yeah. Where they're, yeah, with the gimp. The gimp and the rape, the, yes. the homosexual rape and everything. And, yeah. Uh, you got, you know... Um, you got the the Winston Wolf sequence. Uh, you got the watch sequence. You got just everything is almost iconic. Yeah, virtually every moment. And I think that was another thing that struck me watching this movie is that like nearly the entire script is just like line after line of uh, like iconic things that people quote constantly. Yeah, like, I mean, it's full of it. You had mentioned, you know, Sam Jackson's, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, proselytizing right, there and right. he gives the biblical verse out when uh, they go to retrieve the briefcase uh, in the drug deal you know uh, gone wrong pickup or whatever right. it is so you know the, and, and you know the uh, adrenaline shot to the heart for me there's just yeah it's just constant the yeah. whole thing is just awesome yeah I mean this movie is also like especially the, the the bible verse speech which I was reading also apparently is is totally like mostly made up and is not actually even from the really Bible. yes um, like one line at the end yeah. i think is like and i'll show you that i am the lord or something is is actually from there that verse but the rest of it is not um you know this, this is a great source of memes for currently you know there are so many like uh or like say what again or do they speak english you know like there's so many variations on that that you can right. find online in 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 photos and and animations and stuff online 
um, you know, this is this movie has continued to like give so many gifts to pop culture over the last 25 years. But let's take a break. And when we come back, we can talk a little more about the legacy of Pulp Fiction. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our 1994 season, we're talking about the Palme d'Or winner at the Cannes Film Festival, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. And uh, what do we think about the legacy of Pulp Fiction? I mean, like we were saying, just movies, you know, there's a movie... Again, I don't know which one it is. Oh, Be Cool, where they... Oh, my uh, God, that's such a bad movie. Uh, John Travolta and Uma Thurman dancing it together. Yeah. You know? And then, you know, uh, Nick Fury is looking at his own, you know, grave, and it's got the same Bible verse right, on there. And right. As Sam Jackson in one of the Avengers films or whatnot. Yeah. So it is a constant source. And, uh, of course, who could forget Plum Fiction? <laughs> the uh, 1997 spoof film with it. But have you seen Plump Fiction? No, I have okay. not. So maybe if we do 97, it's an awesome <laughs> movie here. But uh, it's just great all the way through. It is. It is absolutely uh, a great film. I'm trying to think what other... I mean, we mentioned so many of the performances and even the small Yeah, Eric performances. Stoltz is a lot yeah. of fun. Uh, and... Roseanne Arquette. There's a great moment that I, great. Yeah. that I noticed in this movie where they're getting ready to give... Uh, Uma Thurman to give Mia the adrenaline shot and you see them and you're focused as a viewer, you're focused on Eric Stoltz and on John Travolta and their faces and they're so nervous and and Rosanna Arquette, her character has spent the entire preceding scene complaining about this and yelling about it and there she is in the background with this like fascinated look on her face and it's such a beautiful background touch. Yeah, she's got so much joy going yes, on. Yes, And there's of course the other character who's just smoking weed on yeah. the bong who just says nothing there. Right. And, but yeah, uh, no, I agree with you. That 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 is a very memorable face Rosanna Arquette puts on yeah. right there. Um, one other thing that I wanted to say is like, I love the way this movie uses the city as a uh, character. Yeah, you know, like the environment really adds. You know, if this was Des Moines, I don't think it would have. <laughs> no offense, Des Moines, right? Like this is a very L.A. pulpy story, right? You know, and it has to be there and. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe his best use of environment, I'd say. Yeah, and I mean, and that's something that Tarantino does do well, whether that's, you know, a cabin in the in the Hateful Eight or the, the South in Django Unchained. He, right. he has a good sense of place. Uh, but yeah, it is a very L.A. movie. There's that moment where, where the wolf asks Jules and Vincent if he can give them a ride and they tell him where they live. And, you know, Jules lives in Inglewood and Vincent lives in Redondo Beach. And, you know, if you've been to L.A. or if you lived in L.A., you know, when Winston says, oh, you move out of the sticks, guys. And just yeah. the, the geography of the ridiculous sprawling nature of Los Angeles is, it's you know, that was a funny moment that I that struck me. I would say to add to that point. Almost every L.A. based movie, like where L.A., where the purpose of L.A. being the location is a big point of the movie, uh, brings to mind Pulp Fiction. Like yeah. it really has imprinted itself as like quintessential L.A. I think yeah. so. Yeah, it definitely it definitely has. Um, um, well, I was just going to go back to like the the, the smaller performances. Uh, in addition to Rosanna Arquette, uh, Julia Sweeney. Who I think might have been Tarantino's girlfriend at the time. Um, that's probably wrong. It's Pat. Uh, it's Pat, right? Which we also uh, brought up recently on our North yeah. episode. Um, but just such a random presence, and she's in for like one scene. I was like, "Damn, dude, Julia Sweeney! Like you, you brought that." Kathy Griffin is in this movie. Yeah, she's good in that. Too, yeah, so. I mean, I feel like everyone Tarantino has such an eye for that. 
for casting. Yeah. And everyone, whether it's someone like Julia Sweeney or Kathy Griffin that we don't think of as in this role or some towering figure of acting like Bruce Willis, everyone in this movie does their best work. Yeah, Frank Whaley as yeah. Brett, who's about to get shot up and right. everything. Um, but yeah, and Bruce Willis is so important to bring up because... Uh, I think that was a seminal moment for indie film where you could get a big star to come down on price and whatever, take back end points. And now, and now you see, you know, so many actors doing these indie films after that because of Bruce Willis, who is like perfect as that, like kind of downtrodden boxer and everything. Right, like right. And I think maybe a lot of actors saw in, in Bruce Willis, who was still a, a huge star at the time, but also in Travolta, who was, you know, had kind of a faded star that doing a movie like that can really burnish your career and get you to another level when you go back to do a big Hollywood movie that you can, you know, have that reputation as someone who really dug into this, you know, indie part. And they showed that that was like an important thing for these A-list actors I, to do. I would love to see Travolta do another movie. I know they had talked about the Vega boys with, uh, him oh, and Michael right. Madsen. Yeah. Which that's not going to happen. That now. can't way happen. Too old. Yeah. But, um, you know, cause Michael Madsen, was originally supposed to be the character and it was going to be his character from, from Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. But I'd love to see Travolta do something with Tarantino again just to see, you know, that kind of measured performance or just to see what he could get out of him now again. Yeah, you know? I wonder if Travolta could do this now. Uh, I, mean, I think he could, Yeah, you know? I don't All these know. actors that, you know, become bigger and bigger, you know, and they like to you know, choose scenery, so to speak. Like, yeah. they still have the skills in there, you know? It would be great to see what he does with them. Yeah. Now. I, I mean, I would be curious about that uh, if they if they came together again. Uh, or or Bruce Willis, who also, I mean, he's the sort of the opposite of Travolta. You know, they, they're similarly prolific in all these terrible straight-to-video movies they do, and Travolta always goes way too big, and Willis always seems like he's barely awake. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so it'll be interesting to see them, you know, see what Tarantino would get out of them uh, now. So, yeah, what, what, else, what else did we miss about this movie? What else is there to say? About- I mean, we could... Literally just go down scene by scene. That is true. But we don't need to do that. No. I mean, the influence is still resonating today, I think, of you still see, like, uh, there's that great, there's that great um, sequence in Swingers where they're talking about how Tarantino influenced everyone today, but Scorsese had influenced him. And you see that in the Mean Streets and everything like that. And, like, those movies are still influential today when they're that good. Of course. Of course. Of course generational and everything one thing one influential thing about it that you guys didn't mention is i think other than maybe scarface it's the most common movie poster to be in a college yeah. kid's dorm yeah yeah i definitely bought well i think i was before college but i definitely bought that t-shirt like when i was on my way to college and thought i was so cool <laughs> when i wore it in hey, college how about uh the soundtrack too that the was the soundtrack big... yeah that is a very important aspect of this movie that tarantino's use of those needle drops is like and it is something that has now become a cliche and rehabilitating you know these kind of corny uh or easy listening-ish songs and making yeah. them cool uh yeah every time he plays a song in this movie it is the absolute right song for that moment and also is a song that you wouldn't have expected to be in that moment. Um, and I think that's something that, that Scorsese definitely had a big influence on yeah. him in because Scorsese is, is huge on that. And maybe his choices are a little more 
down the middle in terms of classic rock or whatever, but but the way that he can put a song in a movie at the right moment and bring that moment to the next level is something that Tarantino took and from him. Scorsese loves Pulp Fiction. Just I'm you know, sure, of course. Asked yeah. Him about that. yeah. The only other thing I had in my notes was uh, this is the best-selling script as a book in the United Kingdom's history, which is kind of a cool. Yeah, I mean, this seems like if if you're gonna buy a script to read, like this This, is the kind of thing that you would want. Yeah, first indie to gross a hundred million. You mentioned that's pretty important, I think. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the legacy of this film is every damn indie crime movie that was made since I yeah think, really. and the, di- the style of dialogue whether it's crime or not you know has been ripped off a lot and uh you know when we when we started um the idea with this podcast uh why it's an awesome movie year if you just the reason we started with 1994 if you just look at the best picture nominees forrest gump won four weddings and a funeral pulp fiction quiz show shawshank redemption so that's it like i mean that's that's an awesome movie year. we're not talking about all of them we're talking about some of them plus some other awesome movies but uh this is um probably the i don't know i think it's going to go down as our our favorite movie from this year yeah i mean i think in terms of the movies we're talking about but also probably i would say you know overall i mean this is definitely for me one of my favorite movies yeah uh of all time um so yeah i mean the other, the other legacy of this movie is is you know, business wise is making indie films a viable thing that can make money at the box office, that can do something for A-list actors careers that, you know, all the major studios, you talk about Disney buying Miramax and all these other major studios started up their own little indie film divisions when, after this movie came out. And the Miramax award, you know, marches, uh, how they would uh, market and campaign for awards, which only became a bigger monster as time went on. Yeah, that's true. I mean, one of the legacies of this movie is, of course, uh, turning Harvey Weinstein into a major right the uh, indie whisperer. Yeah, yeah, you know, which is maybe uh, tarnishes it a bit, but um, no, I don't think it does because this has nothing to do with that. That's true. Know? No, that's true. It doesn't tarnish the film as a film. Uh, it definitely is, you know, a little weird now. I think I mentioned, you know, on my uh, my DVD. You know, it has this this uh, celebration of Miramax's legacy or whatever as it as at the beginning, and that's a little weird to watch now. But um, yeah, it, it, that's a, maybe a negative about Harvey Weinstein, and you know, definitely lesser films that knocked this off. Um, the career boost for the actors, and now, of course, as we were saying, Tra- Travolta and Bruce Willis make so many very bad movies in which they are very bad. <laughs> which uh which is a whole other podcast that's true you could do an entire podcast just devoted to travolta and willis's uh straight to video roles but we were talking i think when we were watching this movie about how is it that travolta and willis have not been together in some awful straight to vodb movie and they have not that's, that, that's something to look forward to yeah we can do that on dave's podcast on piecing it together when it yeah happens, so. um so uh here's my question yes so tarantino after this what do we think that that is another question i i I honestly i love this movie so much it is weird to me that i'm pretty much lukewarm on every other tarantino movie since this Mm. i am not lukewarm on every other one i love some and some i don't love um so uh like i love django i love 
both the Kill Bills, you know? Yeah. But then there are, like, I didn't like Jackie Brown at all. I remember having read that script. I didn't like it then. Um, and, uh, you know, a few of the other ones was uh, Death Proof. Was Death the, Proof, yeah, like and then that. Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight I didn't like. That was a bummer to me because yeah. I wanted to like that one. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you know, Inglorious Bastards is great, and Kill Bills, and, you know, that's the, the you know, and then... um like we said, uh, the, the, the Django. So, you know, overall, I, I'm good with it. I think he's doing good. So. I, yeah, I mean, I think as opposed to, say, Kevin Smith, who we talked about when we talked about Clerks, who really failed to live up to that in a lot of ways. And I think Tarantino has had a very respectable, uh, strong career. But I, for me, all of those other movies, like some of them I like more than others, but none of them stuck with me. You know, I barely remember them. Kill Bill definitely stuck with me. Django, I think if I watched again, would stick with me. And, you know. Um, I would like to go on record as someone who still absolutely loves most of what Quentin Tarantino has done since. Um, certainly, I don't think anything really reaches Pulp Fiction level. Um, but I, I think he's done quite a lot that I've really, really enjoyed. What's your favorite? Uh, other than Pulp Fiction, I'd probably say Inglorious Bastards, um, but also Kill Bill I loved. I actually did love Hateful Eight. I know a lot of people don't. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, but I lo- but what I love about Kill Bill is it's two totally different. I know he wanted to do it as one thing, and it was supposedly Harvey Weinstein who told him to separate it, which was great advice because you have a kung fu movie, and then you have a Western, and they both work as awesome genre picks. And, uh, you know, 2019, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is the year that maybe yeah. he gets another L.A. magical movie back together. Yeah, and, everything. and and I mean, as much as I'm kind of, you know, not super enthused about his subsequent films, I'm still looking forward to that, and I'm still hoping to love another Tarantino movie. Uh, I mean, I do like some of that other his other stuff. I think uh, Django Unchained might be my my favorite of his later ones, but. Um, yeah, I'm still excited to see what he does next. Certainly more excited to see what he does next than what John Travolta or Bruce Willis do next. Yeah, it would be weird to think in like, you know, 15 years is Leo DiCaprio going to be making crappy VOD movies and stuff. Like yeah, that. I mean, I hope not. But, you know, uh, anything's possible. So we both agree this is, you know, um, five out of five, whatever we want to call this one. We'll, we'll call it a... Uh, five out of five 1950s uh, impersonators who yeah. serve as waiters or whatnot. <laughs> yeah, I think I rated this a four and a half out of five on Letterboxd just because I'm very stingy about giving out a perfect rating. But this is a great, a great film. Absolutely. No question. Yeah, uh, it's it's one of the best and um, a great way to um, this was one of the reasons we chose 1994. Yeah, to start the, yeah, the podcast. It, it is. It is. Um, so that's Pulp Fiction. And uh, that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media where? We are all over at Awesome Movie Year, the IG, the Twitter, and the Facebook, and uh, awesomemovieyear.com. And then I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all of those things. So come say hi. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at SignalBleed, on Facebook at Josh Bell Hates Everything. And at joshbellhateseverything.com. And uh, our producer, Dave, also. Yep, you can find Piecing It Together on Twitter and all the other social medias at PiecingPod. And join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, a movie discussion group. 
So what do we have coming up in our next episode? The next one, we are going to choose a documentary. Um, and what we've decided is not the most famous documentary of 1994, because that would be Hoop Dreams, which is over three hours long. We both like the movie, but, you know, hey, we got other. <laughs> we got things to do. So we're going to watch uh, Crumb. Yes. Terry Zweigoff's Crumb, his documentary about cartoonist R. Crumb. So check that out next time. And this has been Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.